Hello, 22 Goals listeners. If you're enjoying our show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative podcasts, like Icons Club. That's a history of the NBA told through the voices of legendary players. That Michael Jordan sure gives a great interview. Or maybe you'd like one of our culture narrative shows like Gene and Roger, which is about legendary movie critics Siskel and Ebert. Or you could listen to Gamblers, a show about people who make money off the most surprising stuff. Did you know you can gamble on chess? Also legendary, if you ask me. We like legendary stuff here at The Ringer, and we like you. Thanks for listening. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Today, we're going to start with the ending. Because if we don't talk about it now, we're going to feel it waiting for us at the end of everything we do talk about. On June 22, 1994, Andres Escobar, the captain of the Colombia men's national soccer team, a widely respected player, a widely loved player, a player known as a quiet, serious, disciplined, courteous, and thoughtful human being, Andres Escobar scored an own goal in Colombia's match against the United States at the World Cup. Colombia lost the game 2-1 and was eliminated during the group stage of the tournament. Ten days later, on the early morning of July 2nd, 1994, Andres Escobar was confronted by a group of men outside a club in his hometown, Medellin, the second largest city in Colombia and the namesake of its most infamous drug cartel. The men taunted Escobar for the own goal. He tried to reason with them. He was sitting in his car, said that the goal had been an honest mistake insisted that they treat him with respect. One of the men drew a 38 caliber pistol, shot Escobar six times, and killed him. According to CNN at the time, the man yelled goal each time he pulled the trigger. The next night, police arrested a person whom they believed to be the gunman, Umberto Castro Munoz. Munoz was a bodyguard and a driver for the powerful criminals and drug traffickers, the Gaijon brothers. The Gaijones had reportedly lost large sums of money betting on Colombia's matches at the World Cup. Prosecutors believed, but couldn't prove or were somehow convinced not to try to prove that the Gaijones had ordered Munoz to kill Escobar in retaliation for the own goal. Munoz was sentenced to 43 years in prison. He wound up serving just 11 years before being released for good behavior. Huh, the Gaijone brothers, who had powerful political connections, did a couple months each for trying to cover up the murder. Escobar's funeral drew thousands of Colombians who followed the car carrying his body on a 10-mile walk to the cemetery. When he was buried, the second round of the World Cup had just gotten underway in the U.S. This story ends with a coffin, 
There's no way around it. There's no plot twist in store for us. There's no revelation that reverses the tragedy in the third act. There's no third act. Andres Escobar lives for 27 years, and then he's murdered. That's what's coming. We all know. And now I want to ask you to do something almost impossible. I want to ask you to put all that out of your mind. That's actually impossible. I can't do it. So I'll ask you to do what I'm going to try to do, which is to put it out of your mind as much as you can. Forget about the ending as much as you can. Andres Escobar's life has been, in many ways, and inevitably, defined by his death. I want us to try to see him differently. That may also be impossible. But I want to try to see him as he was before the ending was written. I want to try to see him as he was when he was alive. Before we go on, can we talk about my bell for a second? I have this bell. I've been trying to figure out what to do with it. I'm hoping you can help me. My bell is a nice bell. It's a hotel desk bell. You know, like a brass dome with a button on top, and you press your finger on the button to ring it and summon the clerk? Who should really? Where is that clerk? Do they really just leave this place? Well, look, no one's judging you. You had a long flight. It's that kind of bell. It's got these ornate sort of Victorian leaves and flowers carved on it. A fine bell. The story of how I got this bell is perhaps the single most embarrassing story I could possibly tell about myself. Should I share it with you? Ugh, fine. The story of my bell. Longtime listeners of this program, which is now in its 10th episode, may be aware that I have a couple of dogs, two whippets named Lilybean and Simon. I am trying hard not to talk about them constantly on the podcast, even if they are the two most magical creatures in the universe. That's not fair. They're not the most magical creatures in the universe. They're tied for first with your dogs. Anyway, Lilybean gets cold easily. She's a little white whippet with fawn coloration, very thin, short coat. She gets chilly. She is a princess. You know how it goes. If you put Lilybean in a fairy tale, she wouldn't just refuse to sleep on a pile of mattresses with a pea underneath them. She'd refuse to sleep on a pile of mattresses that had once had a pea underneath them one time in the distant past. She'd be like, oh no, I'm not getting back up there. The horror is still fresh from last time. The horror being one pea. So because Lily gets cold while she's lounging all day on our softest and most legume-free pieces of human furniture, she likes to be under blankets. She likes us to put blankets on her. I think she sees my wife, Siobhan, and me as like her blanket concierges. We're employed by the establishment to perform this service for her. And the way she lets us know that she needs another blanket put on top of her is that she starts digging at the furniture, scrabbling at it. Not great for the sofas. Dogs dig holes to get warm. Blankets make her warm. This is a perfectly coherent, logical chain in Her Highness's royal brain. We were trying to figure out how to stop her from digging the stuffing out of the sofa. 
And we had this idea. What if we could train her to ring a bell whenever she needed assistance with a blanket? People train dogs to ring bells when they need to go outside. How is this different? I have no idea how we came to the conclusion that furnishing our dog with a hotel desk bell was the right tactic for this assignment. Was she going to press it with her paw? I think we had this vision that it would sit on the side table by her favorite chair, and she'd ring it with her little foot. What is wrong with us? For about five weeks, every time we put a blanket on Lily, we would ding the bell. Learning by association, this plan was unsuccessful in teaching her not to dig the couch. All we did was teach her to hate bells. About half the time, when we'd ding the bell, she'd just bail on the blanket and walk off, like she'd sneeze in a really huffy way and withdraw to her private chambers upstairs. You know more about me than I'm comfortable with. But as a result of this story, I have this bell that I'm trying to find a use for. I have some ideas. We'll talk about it. I'm Brian Phillips, by the way. Welcome to 22 Goals, the story of the World Cup. Bells or no bells, this is a hard one. This is the hardest one. This one, it's hard for a lot of reasons. There's the obvious reason. We're here to talk about Andres Escobar's own goal in the 1994 World Cup and what came after it and the murder of a soccer player seemingly over a soccer match is hard to think about, especially a player as widely loved as Escobar was. As Escobar still is. This is not a soccer podcast. This is a, well... Today, this is a place where we're going to spend some time feeling pretty sad. We are. But it's not all sad, I promise. Andres Escobar's death was tragic and violent. His life was anything but. But it's hard for other reasons, too. Okay, I'm about to tell you a lot of really nice things about Andres Escobar. A lot of really warm, endearing stuff. That part isn't hard. But if you're anything like me, maybe you find it a little hard to trust stories in which a young person dies tragically, and then some media guy like me swoops in and tells you how great they were. He was the perfect son. She was the ideal partner. They were so respectful and hardworking and considerate. When I hear that, maybe it's just lifelong exposure to sports media, but I start squirming a little, if I'm honest. I think to myself, okay, sure, but what were they really like? Well, as far as I am able to make out, Andres Escobar truly was most of those things, maybe all of those things. The way people who knew him talk about him you can be as cynical about media narratives as you want, but you can still hear the difference between genuine, deep admiration for a person and the forms of polite praise. And the way people tend to talk about Andres is the way you talk about someone whom you genuinely trusted and relied on. During the 1994 World Cup, the brother of one of his teammates was killed. And it was Andres who stayed up the night before the match in which he scored the own goal, who stayed up to support his teammate in his grief. He was that guy. Sometimes he was annoyingly that guy. He read a little bit of the Bible every day. Okay, he kept two bookmarks in his Bible. Fine. The two bookmarks were a picture of his mom and a picture of his fiance. Come on. But that's 
who Andres Escobar was. He believed that there was a connection between the way you lived your life and the way you played soccer. He said that if your life is disorganized, you'll be a mess on the pitch. So maybe it's fair to look at his game to help us understand how he lived, why people felt that way about him. He was a defender. His game was disciplined, calm. If you watch him, he doesn't seem clinical or cold on the pitch so much as he exudes a sort of purposeful tranquility. There are some defenders who have this wonderful quality, an easily overlooked quality, of calming everything down wherever they go on the pitch. An attack in soccer is a really exciting thing. It makes your heart beat faster. It makes everything seem frantic and thrilling. And I love that. But if you're a defender, no, that is not what you want. You want heart rates to go down. You want excitement to dissipate. And there are a few defenders, it's a weird magic trick, who just seem to dissipate frenzy through sheer personal gravity. Paolo Maldini was like that. I never understood how he did it. I always got the impression that if you stood next to Paolo Maldini, like in a line at the airport, you'd feel really centered all of a sudden. It would ground you. <sighs> Everything is actually fine. And that's great if you're in line at the airport, but if you're an attacking midfielder and you're leading the forces of mayhem on a shrieking charge into the gates of the enemy fortress, the last thing you want to meet is a defender who grounds you and makes all the tension drain out of your legs. And that's how Andres Escobar played soccer. I think he really was the guy people talk about. But at the same time, partly because he was a genuinely admirable person, because it's so easy to celebrate him, Andres Escobar, the human being, has gotten a little hard to make out. He's become a symbol to millions of people. His death represents the dark side of soccer, an era of Colombian history, the victims of drug cartels. But no one is a symbol on a Tuesday afternoon. No one is a symbol to themselves. So there is a question hanging over this episode like a church bell over a cathedral. The question is, how can we see Andres Escobar now? Where do we look for him? How do we find the person behind the martyr, behind the icon? The person who didn't always know what he was doing. The person who had whims and foibles and who worried about stuff and laughed about stuff and liked one kind of cereal better than another kind of cereal and lived his life never expecting it to end the way it did. How does that person relate to Andres Escobar, the figure of official memory. He was born in Medellin, Colombia in 1967. His father, Dario, was a banker, which meant that the family was pretty well off. Most soccer players in Colombia, like most good soccer players almost everywhere, came from poor neighborhoods. But that wasn't Andres' situation. He went to private schools, Catholic schools. Every morning before school, he went to mass with his mom. He was devoutly religious. He was a disciplined student in class. He was serious about his schoolwork. But after school, he was single-mindedly focused on soccer. He was good at it. He was snapped up in 1985 by the youth program at the Medellin Club Atletico Nacional, one of the biggest clubs in Colombia. He moved to the senior team in 1987, the year he turned 20. The next year, he got his first call-up to the Colombian national team. And here is something I really like about Andres at the age of 21. 
to me, this is a little window, a little glimpse through the image and into the person. And I say this with respect. 21-year-old Andres Escobar has awful hair. Look, I am someone who, in grade school, once sported the absolute coolest youth haircut available in Oklahoma in 1985, straight on top and permed in the back. Yikes, now I'm bald. And honestly, it's a relief to be spared those decisions. I'd probably still have that haircut. (sighs) You know way too much about me. Andres' hair is not that bad. It's not 1985 Oklahoma bad. More New Jersey bad, I want to say. Imagine if Bon Jovi had a saxophone player. There's a video I adore from 1988. Andres is a rising star only a couple months into his career with the Columbia national team. And he does something amazing. He scores a goal against England at Wembley. Colossal header from a corner kick. Salvaged a 1-1 draw for Columbia. Always a big deal when a defender scores to secure a result at Wembley, which may be why the Colombian commentator treats the moment like he's Pavarotti on stage at La Scala. Andres Escobaro. De Colombia. Andres Escobaro. Really good goal. His first and only international goal. Except, well, and if you watch the video, you see that, well, Andres was known for his serious demeanor. And he clearly already has it, even though he's only 21. I think he probably had it when he was 12. His nickname was El Caballero de Football, the Gentleman of Football. Great nickname. He scores, and he celebrates, he's happy, but then, quite quickly, his heartbeat seems to slow down. He collects himself, he's a gentleman. He makes a solemn-looking sign of the cross and gets back to the game. That's his vibe, but not too long ago, I left this video paused on my screen. And when I came back to my computer and, like, jiggled the mouse, I didn't remember what this image was from for a second. And my brain went, who is this dude with the mullet? And how badly does he want girls to compliment his trans am? Awful hair. I say it with love. And I guess this gets to me so much. Because he doesn't seem here like a martyr or a symbol. He seems like a young person with a lifetime of choices and experiences and regrettable hair decisions ahead of him, which is, of course, what he is, in addition to all the other things he is. Okay, one idea I had for what I could do with my bell, since Lily Bean doesn't seem to want it, you can tell me if you think this is dumb. I was thinking that I could use it to help me in my job as a writer in moments when I can't find the right words or when an idea is eluding me. Whenever I come to a point halfway through a sentence where the rest of the sentence is a blank, maybe I could ring my bell and summon the right words, like I'm standing at the unattended front desk of creativity and I could use some help checking in I know it would just be a psychological shortcut. Obviously, I do not think my bell can open a portal to the spirit realm of divine inspiration. I'm not some kind of weirdo. I just think that the blanket bell I bought for my frosty whippet could perhaps finish my sentences for me. I don't know. There's something pretty satisfying about the thought. Words are such slippery little creatures. The idea that I could smack my bell when I don't know what to say and the right words would be like, you rang? 
sometimes a little mental trick is enough to help you make an unexpected connection or at least help you identify the point at which something escapes all words. Like, Lionel Messi takes on six defenders and somehow weaves his way through all of them like... To see the erosion of democracy in our lifetimes while millions cheer on the people making it collapse leaves you feeling... The precise flavor of a Cool Ranch Dorito combines the chemical tang of mouthwash with the smoky paprika of a Hungarian goulash with an ineffable bouquet of... As a podcast host, my main weakness is... Ask not for whom my bell tolls. It tolls for thee, in the sense that I just rang it for you. This may or may not work. But anyway, it's the top contender for bell repurposing at the moment. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Did you watch the two Escobars? I'm kind of assuming you did. That's the acclaimed 30 for 30 documentary that talks about Andres's life. It's a terrific movie, super interesting movie. Interesting partly because it kind of shows you the process of turning Andres into this public symbol. And it also shows you why that's not necessarily a bad thing, why that kind of symbolism matters. So the two Escobars juxtaposes Andres Escobar's life and death with the rise and fall of Pablo Escobar, the head of Colombia's most powerful drug cartel during the 80s and early 90s, an era when Colombian drug cartels were more or less running the country, and the country seemed to be sliding into anarchy and violence. Andres and Pablo aren't related at all. They just have the same last name. I created a whole podcast around repetitions of the number 22, content, loves, and echo. Not related, but they're linked in that Pablo Escobar was a huge soccer fan. During the 1980s, he basically bankrolled Nacional, which made him Andres's de facto employer. Many of Colombia's drug lords were passionate about soccer, both for sporting reasons and for money laundering reasons. Combine your hobbies. Colombia rose as a soccer power in the 80s. And a major reason why was the cash that the cartels poured into the game. 
a whole new generation of Colombian stars emerged. Andres was one of the most popular, but there was also the flamboyant goalkeeper Rene Iguita and the great attacking midfielder Carlos Valderrama. Couple of guys who know about hair choices. Players like that. With better training facilities, better pitches, better coaches, and better salaries, these players were able to stay in Colombia, play together, and they got really good. Andres's Atletico Nacional team won the Copa Libertadores, the club championship for all of South America in 1989. The players were also semi-required to pal around with the upper echelon of cartel bosses. The two Escobars talks about how the country's biggest stars would be flown out to Pablo Escobar's ranch. They'd stage private soccer games for the top leaders of the Medellin cartel. That kind of stuff. There's sort of pawns in this system as Colombia is falling into what's basically a civil war between the cartels and the government, and also between the cartels and the other cartels. Politicians are assassinated, the murder rate skyrockets, gun battles in the streets. It's not a good time. Footnote one, see the American cocaine market. The movie is mostly about that story. And in the movie, everything we hear about Andres is about fitting him into that story, making him represent one side of that story. He's the honest, upstanding citizen who pays the price for the violence. He represents the victims of the era. So we see a lot of footage of him. We hear from a lot of people who knew him. We hear from his sister. We hear from his teammates. We hear from his fiance. He was engaged to a dentist, which I always found incredibly charming for some reason. That's another little glimpse of the human being. But everything we hear in the movie works toward the purpose of constructing this historical figure. We hear how uncomfortable he was associating with Pablo Escobar, how much he hated violence, how much he wanted soccer to offer an alternative. And again, I think all that is true and is a metaphor for Colombian history. It's powerful. It's valuable. Having a face to put to that history, having someone like Andres to embody those ideas, it means so much to people. But I just keep thinking that this version of the story is so focused on his death. His death is what makes his life so meaningful. And maybe that's inevitable. Maybe I'm wrong to worry about it. Maybe I'm like, sure, Aslan died on the stone table in order to save Edmund from the White Witch and eventually free Narnia from eternal winter. But did you know he also enjoyed Chex Mix? But I just keep wondering, what happens to the version of the story that Andres himself experienced? What happens to the version where everything is still... Anyway, sorry if I'm rambling. I don't think this bell strategy is going to work. I may still fall back on it if I'm desperate. But you can't summon the right words out of thin air. Partly because, what the hell was I even talking about? And partly because words don't come out of nothing. They come out of history. They come out of other words. Okay. I'm going to keep rambling for a second. One of my favorite word origin stories, just quickly, and I promise this is going to come back to soccer, belongs to the word salient. Long time ago, in the 1600s, the word salient is part of a term called salient point which refers to the first moment when a heartbeat can be detected in an embryo, comes from the Latin word salire, which means to jump. The salient point is where you can feel the heart jumping. 
Because jumping also implies emerging or standing out, the word salient also starts to be used to describe things that are conspicuous or things that project outward. The most prominent part of an argument is now also called the salient point. And soldiers start using salient to describe a kind of warfare in which a military force controls a small strip of land projecting into enemy territory. By World War I, salient has evolved to the point where you can have the Ypres salient, a narrow strip of land in Belgium that saw some of the bloodiest fighting of the entire 20th century. And so a word can start out meaning a heartbeat and end up denoting a place where 600,000 people died by violence. Language just goes where it goes. Another story like this is the story of the word glamour. This is super counterintuitive, but glamour, with its suggestion of style and fascination and charisma, started out as the same word as grammar, meaning like sentence diagrams. Because centuries ago, most people in Europe couldn't read, and so reading was imbued with a kind of magical quality. If you could read, if you were a scholar, then you were assumed to be privy to all kinds of secret and perhaps forbidden knowledge. So an old word for a magical spellbook, maybe you know this if you ever played Dungeons and Dragons, is grimoire. Grimoire, grammar. And over time, that sense of grammar as magic and the other sense of grammar as the structure of language started to pull apart. And the magic version became glamour, which then evolved to mean spellbinding style. And so there's this invisible but intimate connection between our word for this vibrant, intoxicating beauty and our word for the technical study of sentence forms. All right, ramble concluded. Sorry. 1994. By the time the 1994 Men's World Cup kicks off in the United States, Andres is one of the most popular athletes in Colombia. He's the captain of the national team. He's got endorsement deals. He's in a ton of commercials. You can go on YouTube today and see him advertising, like, speed stick deodorant. I love this, actually, because, well, I don't know if it's a glimpse of Andres, the spontaneous human being, but it's a glimpse of Andres completely outside the memorialization industrial complex. Here's Andres, now with slightly shorter hair, in a clean, bright locker room, taking the speed stick off the top shelf of the locker and holding it up for the camera in the universal TV commercial deodorant grip. You know the one where you raise the deodorant up to shoulder height like it's your phone and you're trying to show someone a photo? Shirtless Andres with a towel around his shoulders, looking directly into the camera with a gleaming smile on his face because his girlfriend is a dentist and speed stick keeps him dry. It's a lot to process. 1994. Pablo Escobar has been killed, gunned down at the end of 1993. This has not made Colombia safer. It has made Colombia more violent and chaotic because now all the lesser drug lords are fighting for the scraps Colombia's international image is more or less in ruins. It's the murder capital of the world. Bombings, kidnappings, profound fear, profound unrest. This causes Andres a lot of distress. He worries about his country. He's a thoughtful man. Everyone agrees about that. Quiet and thoughtful. He thinks about the relationship of soccer and life, and he wants soccer to show people a better way to live. 
One of his friends, the journalist Cesar Mauricio Velazquez, says he saw soccer as, quote, a school of life to teach values and tolerance. Andres himself will later say, we have only two options, either allow anger to paralyze us and the violence continues, or we overcome and try our best to help others. It's our choice. The nation is going through hell, but the national team is in great shape. In the years leading up to 1994, they roll over pretty much everybody. They beat Brazil, they beat Argentina 5-0 in a high-stakes World Cup qualifying match in Buenos Aires. They earn a standing ovation from stunned Argentine fans in 26 matches ahead of the World Cup, they lose once. Pele is asked who he likes in the tournament. He says, Colombia. In Bogota, in Medellin, the anticipation is acute. Expectations are high. People think Colombia has a legitimate chance to win the World Cup. Andres' parents fly to the United States to watch Andres in the tournament. And then the team lands in California, and things don't go their way. It's sports. It happens. On June 18th, they have a nightmare match against Romania in Group A. They lose 3-1 in front of almost 92,000 people at the Rose Bowl. And now the real nightmare starts. The players start receiving death threats. Someone hacks the TVs in their hotel room to display a message. The message says that if the manager plays the midfielder Gabriel Gomez in the next match, the entire team will be killed. The players are worried about their families back home. Only a few months earlier, the infant son of one of Escobar's fellow defenders had been kidnapped in Medellin. Now people are saying that powerful cartel figures are losing money betting on the team. Andres's friend Velazquez says, there appeared a sort of dark hand that was very upset with the team's performance. The manager, Francisco Maturana, shows up to a player meeting in tears. He's decided to pull Gomez, the player the hotel TVs warned him not to play, from the squad. Gomez is a key member of the team, but Maturana is afraid to put his players' lives at risk. This is the atmosphere leading into their second game of the tournament. They're playing the U.S. once again at the Rose Bowl June 22nd, they're terrified. They barely speak before the match. Game kicks off. Colombia throws everything they've got into attacking what should be an overmatched American side. Colombia should easily beat the Americans. Colombia dominates play. The ball will not go in the net. And then, in the 22nd minute, Andres Escobar is tracking back to defend in the area when the American midfielder John Harks plays a diagonal cross from the left side of the goal. I said earlier that this wasn't going to be an unremittingly sad episode, and I meant that. This isn't an unremittingly sad episode or an unremittingly dark episode because Andres Escobar was not a dark person. Andres Escobar is not the cartels. Andres Escobar is not Colombian history. Andres Escobar is not the murder of Andres Escobar. At this moment, with the ball flying in from the left, he's a particular person, experiencing his own life from moment to moment, just as we all are. And I don't want to erase him by letting darkness define his story. Soccer promotes joy. Soccer also sometimes leads to violence. 
People sometimes talk about this contradiction like it's surprising. I don't know, I guess I don't really think soccer is all that special in this regard. Anything that provokes strong feelings can lead to violence. People commit murder for love. The same word can mean a heartbeat and a battlefield. Soccer isn't immune from human contradiction. But the question is, how can we respect the symbol? respect the historical significance Andres assumed without erasing the kid who probably daydreamed sometimes when he was sitting in church with his mom, the person who said wise things about the nature of sports, but also the person who drove to the studio muttering his speed stick script under his breath, the person who saw the Bon Jovi haircut and said, hell yeah. The person who listened to his girlfriend talk about teeth and thought, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. What happened to Andres was dark, but Andres's life wasn't dark to him. It was just life. I believe all that, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't have a sick feeling in my stomach about what's coming next. He turns to clear the ball. He hits it awkwardly. There's not much to it. He just hits it awkwardly. It flies past the goalkeeper, goes in the net, goal USA. How many worse own goals have I seen in soccer games? Dozens. And if you listen back to the calls of the goal at the time, in Spanish, English, doesn't matter, you hear that it sounds just about like any other World Cup goal. It's a mistake, sure, but not a horrific one. Andres lies on his back for a few seconds. Then he gets up and gets on with the game. Same seriousness, same aura of purpose he had after scoring at Wembley. He gets on with it. It's the first own goal of his professional career. Okay, well, a bad thing happened. But you're a 27-year-old player with your life ahead of you. Soccer is your career, but it's also a game. It's not the most important thing in the world. Your team is eliminated in the group stage. What you want to do now is look ahead. You want to move on. Andres has a contract offer from AC Milan. He's excited to move to Italy and see how he ranks among the best defenders in the world. He's getting married soon. The World Cup disappointment hurts. It hurts a lot. But life is still full of things to look forward to. After the tournament, his parents stay in the US for a little while, little vacation. They fly to Nevada. He decides not to go with them. He's also invited to stay in America and do some commentary for a big Colombian radio station. They want to fly him to Dallas and put him up there till the end of the tournament. He considers it. But what he really wants is just to go home. So he goes home, back to Medellin. He knows Colombia fans are devastated, and he knows many fans blame him. He wants to help them move on from the loss. So he writes a column for a Colombian newspaper called El Tiempo. In the column, he asks readers to look ahead and move on. He says it's been a phenomenal experience for him, despite the disappointment of the ending. He says he's looking forward to seeing fans again soon because, quote, life does not end here. The big story at the World Cup at the start of the second round 
is Diego Maradona being kicked out of the tournament after failing a drug test in Dallas. Two nights later, Andres decides to meet some friends in Medellin for a drink. And then... That's the end of the story. We knew it was coming, and I don't know the answer to my question about where to find Andres Escobar. I don't. I haven't figured out how to resolve those contradictions of memory. Andres Escobar seems to mean more to people all the time. He gets easier to admire and harder to see. That's how it goes. But you know, I do think about how words change, how meanings change. You can't stop that process from happening. Meaning is not stable in language. It's shifting all the time. But the best thing about language, in my opinion, is that old meanings, well, they don't quite disappear. They inform the new meanings. They give our speech overtones, suggestions, hints of things we may not even be conscious of. When we say an actor is glamorous, we're connected to this ancient story about literacy and magic that maps in the strangest way onto what we're saying. The old meanings talk to our new meanings. They enliven each other. Maybe it works that way with memories, too. I don't know. Maybe that's incoherent. But I still took a minute just now to look up the etymologies of some of the words in this episode. And I was relieved to learn that our word bell doesn't seem to be related to the Latin root in words like belligerent and bellicose, meaning angry or warlike. Bell comes from the Old English word bella with an e at the end, which means a loud noise, a great roar. This is 22 Goals, the story of the World Cup. Written by me, Brian Phillips. The executive producers of 22 Goals are Chris Ryan, Juliet Littman, and Sean Fennessy. Our story editor is Connor Nevins. The show is produced by Devin Rinaldo, Mike Wargon, and Vikram Patel. Copy editing by Jacqueline Cantor. Fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. The sound design in this episode is by Devin Rinaldo, who also composed the theme song and many of the music tracks. We also used some music from Blue Dot Sessions. Additional mixing by Scott Somerville. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. Match footage from FIFA. Thanks for listening. Listening.